Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Okay, so Israel has left Egypt behind after the ten plagues and everything else. They've gone through the Red Sea and now they're in the wilderness. And they're on their way to, we know, of course, Mount Sinai. And they seem to have arrived at the last section of scripture that we read because they were talking about the rock at Horeb, which is the, the mountain range where Mount Sinai is to be found. So they're pretty close at this point, but they're still in the wilderness in an unfamiliar place. They're being fed with manna every morning. You go out and you collect your day's worth of manna every Friday. You collect two days worth because you're not supposed to gather it on the Sabbath day. God has provided water, as I said, and that took place at Rephidim also. So between verses 7 and 8, the children of Israel have not moved. They've not gone anywhere so far. And for the first time since they left Egypt, and actually the first time at all. Israel as a nation is faced with battle. They were chased by Pharaoh, but you know that the Lord said, I will fight for you. You, you watch, stay out of the way and let me do what I'm going to do. And they didn't have to fight at all. And they sang that amazing song that the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And this is the first time though, they're actually going to have to saddle up and go fight the battle physically. And this is when the Amalekites, the children of Amalek, attacked them. And we know from Deuteronomy 25 a few more details about what happened here as Moses explained it later. Deuteronomy 25 verses 17 and 18, Moses tells them, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. So you can see that the Amalekites were not just attacking the children of Israel, but as this great mass of people were moving through the wilderness, remember they were thirsty, they were looking for water. It's, you know, the Lord is with them, but going through the wilderness is still no joke. And the stragglers at the end were being cut off by these raiders from the nation of Amalek. And let's talk a little bit about this guy, Amalek. We've read his name already, and he will feature, or at least his nation will, several times in Scripture. He was the illegitimate grandson of Esau. So Esau had, had children, and Eliphaz was the name of one of his sons. Eliphaz had one son by one of his concubines, and that's grand, that son and Esau's grandson's name was Amalek. We read about that in Genesis chapter 36. And we know from scripture, Numbers chapter 13, they settled in the Negev, which is the desert to the south of the promised land, which once again, as I've said several times, gives us one more reason to believe that the children of Israel did in fact cross the Red Sea at the Gulf of Aqaba, because that would place them right close to Amalekite territory. And Judges chapter 6 tells us that the Amalekites had a habit of raiding people, in the desert, and they would ride on camels so that nobody could catch them. That's just an interesting little detail to me, because we have our own pictures of what raids from a certain tribe would look like. But of course, this, this is the desert, and this is the Middle East, and they're riding on camels. And they would be longtime enemies of Israel. However distant relatives they were, they are going to be longtime enemies of the nation of Israel. And it starts in this chapter here. So they're walking through the wilderness. They're coming to the mountains of Horeb. And word gets out that 
There are raiders attacking the stragglers, the weak, the tired, maybe the women and the children at the back of the column. And Moses finds out about it, so he commissions Joshua to raise an army and go fight. This is the first time we see Joshua in the Bible. And it talks about him like we should know who he is. In fact, later on, there will tell us his name, Joshua, the son of Nun, and how he was a young man at this time, how he had been Moses' assistant from the time he was a youth, it says. So Joshua is a young guy. And the first thing we see him do is raise an army and go fight. Moses is like, this cannot stand. Pick some guys and go, go drive them off. So you can see this is not so much a a pitched battle with, with grand armies on either side as much as these are some barbarians coming to perhaps enslave the people, perhaps even steal the water that the Lord had just opened up for them at the rock. Of course, water is precious in the wilderness, but they're, they're going to go drive them off. But look at what Moses says he's going to do. He's going to go to an elevated place. He's going to go to a hill with the staff of God in his hand. This is a step of faith from Moses. I'm going to go to an elevated place to watch. Okay, that's great. But I'm going to have the staff of God in my hand. We've seen some pretty amazing things from this staff so far. And by doing this, Moses acknowledges the spiritual nature of this battle they're about to have. This conflict is not just physical. It's not just martial, but it is spiritual. One of the most difficult things for a Christian is to remember that there is a spiritual world all around you. To keep at the forefront of your mind that there is more to the world than what you see. That the people you're speaking to are more than their bodies. That the, the things that happen around you are not just being manipulated by the laws of physics. That there is a spiritual world that we cannot see. It is invisible. We see an example of this in 2 Kings chapter 6. I think you all know this story. Verses 15 through 17. This is about Elisha and his servant Gehazi. His name is not given here, but when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. They had sent an army to arrest Elisha, to capture him. And uh, if you read the story, you'll find out that army was not enough, but they did. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you can imagine Gehazi looking around and saying, no, it's not. (laughs) I see a whole army out there, and we don't have anybody. So Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I don't know if Elisha saw this all the time or if Elisha just had the eyes of faith and just knew it was there. And so he asked the Lord to show him really. But this servant, Gehazi was his name, was able to see into the invisible spiritual realm for a moment. And he saw that indeed there were armies of angels come to fight on behalf of Elisha. And Moses, although he does not say it in this passage, had that same faith. He knew that there's more than just the Amalekites coming to attack the the wagon train, so to speak. He said, this is spiritual. When we face difficulties, all we can see is the attacking army. Now, maybe you've not ever had to fight off an army before. I don't know. But financial difficulty, your relationships starting to go sideways, things like that. Your job is just on the rocks out of nowhere. 
You need to have spiritual eyes to see the spiritual nature of the world. And I'm going to remind us of a few of these things, things that we believe and that we know to be true and that need to be factored into every decision and reaction that we have. So let's talk about this, the spiritual world here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, you know that verse. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places or the heavenlies. This is something the Bible will use to describe the, the, the world where angels and demons and, and that sort of thing live. And they, they would call it the heavens or the heavenlies or the heavenly places. The newer translations have it. We would probably talk about it in terms of dimensions. And it starts to sound like science fiction when we do that. So we'll stick with heavenlies. But Paul said, our, our fight is not in the material one. The one where you can touch and you can see and you can feel. Your fight is in that heavenly place. That's a real place. We know from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2. It says that there is a prince of the power of the air. Again, there's another other elevated space that we're talking about where these things happen. And that, of course, is Satan, the god of this world, little g, god of this world. And that he is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there is a wickedness that dwells in the heavenlies. And that wickedness is actively opposing the people of God or those who might become the people of God. There are some who have done a great disservice to the church by cheapening the devil and by treating him like a cartoon character or by becoming so hysterical over every little thing and saying that it's the devil that made me do it that reasonable Christians are afraid to acknowledge their belief, but he's very, very real. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that the angels of God, the word angel means messenger, the spiritual messengers of God, those who do his bidding, are ministering spirits sent forth to bring assistance to those who will inherit salvation. That the Lord sends his angels to uphold you and help you. So you not only have, have opposition in the heavenlies, you have assistance in the heavenlies. You have those that are on your team. You have those that are fighting for you. You are allied in this war. And all of this is real. And Elisha was able to see it, or Gehazi was able to see it in that story at least. So when Moses sees what most people would consider normal opposition to what he's trying to do. He's able to see through that and know that there's more than this going on. Because what I'm trying to do is not just take some people on a trip through the desert. I'm leading the people of God out of bondage to the place in the wilderness where they will worship the Lord, they will establish the covenant, they will receive the law, and then they will move on to the promised land. And now we're being attacked. Moses says that is opposition to what God is trying to do. Whether or not the Amalekites thought of it that way, until you have been regenerated in the spirit, you are the unwitting pawn of Satan. And even though you think you're serving yourself and your own intentions, the enemy will use you for his. This is why we have to be so careful. This is why Paul said in Ephesians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Because we might be able to see what's going on in the spirit from this group or that person. Can't you see what they're doing? It's so wicked, it's so evil. They might not get it. In fact, they probably don't get it. And that's why Paul tells us to have a heart for these people and to show mercy to them and be patient with them. Because they have no idea. They're being kicked around by the God of this world. They have no defense against him. So when Moses sees spiritual opposition to his spiritual mission, he acts spiritually. <laughs> I'm going to go up on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, the average general would probably say, well, that's very nice, Moses. 
You do whatever you want. That, you, you do you, Moses. We'll go fight the battle. But he says, I'm going to go up on the mountain. This is what you're going to do, Joshua. You're going to go fight the battle. You're going to swing the sword. I'm going to go and have the staff of God in my hands. Brothers and sisters, you need to be able to recognize when there is something spiritual going on in your life. When the, the conflicts you're facing are not physical, material. They're not natural. They are supernatural. When you have new, a, a renewed desire to be a better disciple of Jesus Christ. You have a moment at church where you're on your knees and you're praying, Lord, we're going to get this right. New Year's coming up. We're going to read our Bible this time. We're going to share the gospel. We're going to, we're going to stop this sin. And then everything in your life just seems to go wrong. You can't see that as a coincidence, my friend. You ever tried to pray and all of a sudden your phone's ringing off the hook? And you're trying, how many of you have ever tried, don't have to raise your hand because it's all of you. You know, how many of you have ever gone to pray and you fall asleep? But then as soon as you stop praying, you're wide awake and you feel fine. Amen. Or you sit down and now you remember I was supposed to go to the grocery store today. Or you say, I'm going I'm to go over to his house and I'm going to share the gospel with him. And, and the traffic is just insane. And somebody cuts you off and now you're angry and you're frustrated. You know what? We'll do the gospel thing next time. Let's just go to the movies. That, that, that's, not, that's not coincidence. When you're trying to do something spiritual and everything seems to be lining up to stop you, that's not, that's not normal. That's not how things work. When everything is lining up like that, my goodness, that's spiritual opposition. And sometimes it can be so mundane and so simple that we think that can't possibly be the devil. It's because the de what does the devil do? The devil is big and scary and sends lightning bolts. No, no, he doesn't. He knows. I don't need. Why would I do all that? All I got to do is make her sleepy. <laughs> all I got to do is make him angry. All I got to do is have dad come home from work a little frustrated. And now you feel bad. And so well, I'm not reading my Bible then. Now, if you lay it out, you're like, well, why would I not read my Bible? Because somebody was frustrated with me. But that's how the enemy twists the line of thinking, right? That's spiritual. I've, I've been taught this, and we found it to be true in this very room. When you start praying for somebody to be healed, and weird things start happening with their body, so they say, maybe we should just stop praying. Well, that's not how sickness works. Okay. Well, my, my knee, I've got this problem with my knee. Okay, let's pray for it. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. And then the knee just starts to hurt and it gets inflamed. I can barely stand. Oh, just, just stop, stop, stop. Okay, yeah, it's, it, I better go home right now. It's kind of really hurting me right now. That's not how sickness works. That, that's, that's spiritual. That can be spiritual. We're going to pray for your, my, my neck is hurting. Let's pray for your neck. I've had this happen. Praying for the neck. Uh, how's your neck? Oh, it's fine. But now my lower back is, is just the same kind of pain. And well, let's pray for that. Oh, now my leg, like I can hardly stand on it. Like that's, that's spiritual. That, and that's when you need to start, as the Gospels give us the example, to start praying against an afflicting spirit of sickness rather than just praying for the Lord to heal the body. The Lord shows us both. It's not the same thing as possession. We, we can talk about that another time, but you, got, you see what I'm talking about. When your joy is sapped for no reason, when you are, everything's going fine in your life, bills are paid, everybody's happy, nothing's going wrong, job's going good, and you just, you can't get happy. And you're miserable. And you start looking for reasons to be miserable. And you're trying to remember, why do I feel so messed up today? There has to be a reason. That's spiritual. The enemy loves to come in and steal your joy. I'll never forget. There's been times where I'll say, Lord, I, I've got to get my life right with you. And I get something worked out. And, and you get a vibe from the enemy where he kind of says, I'm coming. I'm going, to, I'm going to make you so miserable. You're going to rue the day you thought you would come in and put that sin away or mature or grow up. The enemy can attack your mind. 
And if all you can see is the physical, you've forgotten and you're fighting on the wrong level. You've got to identify what the fight is. And that's what Moses did here. I, as I said a second ago, <clears throat> many of the miracles of Jesus, he just said, be healed, take up your bed and walk. And other places it says Jesus commanded the spirit of affliction to depart. The woman that was bent over. And it says that she believed and the spirit departed from her. She was able to stand up. She wasn't possessed, but she was bound by the enemy. And Jesus had enough spiritual discernment to know what needed to happen in each situation. Jesus healed some epileptics and he cast demons out of other epileptics. Because he had enough spiritual discernment to know what the fight was in front of him. Identify the fight. So even you, maybe now, you're facing marital troubles that don't make any sense. You just can't get along. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. We're going to get mad and we're going to start fighting. The enemy is an accuser. He loves to accuse us to one another. She doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about me. You know, and you walk away and you, you just, this little fight that shouldn't be that big a deal has turned into, I don't know what we got married for in the first place. This is a disaster. This is my whole life going to be like this. She never cared about me in the first place. Or, or he's such a jerk and I can't believe it. And I can't even let him around the kids anymore. And, you know, those aren't your thoughts. Those are the enemy's thoughts. He's feeding them to you. He's shoveling coal on the fire because he's trying to stoke your flesh and keep you thinking out of the spirit. Maybe you've even got financial difficulties. The devil will do that. The devil's done that for me this year where there is no reason why all of this financial stuff should not just fall into place. But the enemy's just got a hold on it. And the Lord allows it. He allowed Job to lose everything. Job was a rich, rich man. God had blessed him and Satan took it all. Sometimes sickness can be spiritual warfare. Not every time, but sometimes. And you've got to be able to ask that question and tell the difference. Is it an Amalekite or is the Amalekite being prompted to do what he's doing because the enemy hates where you're going? And if he can put a stop to the children of Israel getting to Mount Sinai, well, that's just as good as keeping them in bondage in Egypt. Identify the spiritual nature of your struggle. Verses 10 and 11. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. That's a great example of how you know the fight is spiritual. That's not how battles work, right? Well, Joshua handpicks his army of volunteers from these Hebrews, these weakened Hebrews that have had a long journey through the desert. And he goes to war. And Moses does what he's going to do, which is he ascends the hill with Aaron, his brother, and with this guy we're now meeting for the first time named Hur, H-U-R, Hur. Tradition tells us, and this comes from Josephus, that Hur was the husband of Miriam, who was Moses' sister. That's not scripture, so uh, we can't say that for sure, but it would make a certain amount of sense that these three guys would be together. Clearly, he was a, a prominent elder in, among the children of Israel. We do know from Exodus 31, verse 2, and chapter 35, verse 30, that Hur was the grandfather of a man named Bezalel. Bezalel would be the chief leading craftsman and designer of the tabernacle, who said that God had filled with the Holy Spirit to sew and to weave and to cast gold and to carve wood. And he was the man that God uh, set up to build this thing, and Hur was his grandfather. So that could have been Miriam's grandson as well, which would have been Moses' grandnephew. But if, if he's not related in that way, that's still an important person for this story alone. And you can see the spiritual strategy here. When the hands are up, when the staff is raised, 
The Israelites win. When the staff comes down, the Israelites lose. This is the staff of God. We saw this back in chapter 4, verse 2, when Moses said, how are they going to believe that you've sent me? And God says, what is that in your hand? A staff? A shepherd's staff? A stick, basically? And then in chapter 4, verse 17, the Lord said, you're going to take that staff and you're going to do my wonders with it. This is the staff that the Lord used to strike the Nile River and, and, and turn it to blood. All the plagues that came about because of this. This is the staff that was held over the Red Sea and the waters parted. The last time God won a battle for them, remember? This is the staff that struck the rock and the water came out. It was a symbol of God's power and authority. It was not magic. We saw that early on because Moses is like, what, this? It's my, it's my stick. It's that thing I used to pull the sheep away when they're going towards the edge of a cliff. Or I used it to beat away wolves when they come to the, come to the flock. It was God's power and God's authority. There are those, if I'm not mistaken, in the hoodoo or voodoo traditions that look at Moses as the first shaman and the greatest voodoo man. And he had this amazing stick. And so they'll carry these things in, in imitation of Moses to imitate his, his wonders, which, of course, can't be imitated. It wasn't him. It was the Lord. But Israel here was not a warrior nation. Later on, Israel is going to have mighty men of valor. There would be those of Benjamin that were left-handed uh, men that, that used a sling and they could hit like a dime from a mile away. And you'd have guys that were fighting lions in pits on a snowy day and it just would rip them to pieces. Or guys like Shamgar that would kill 600 Philistines with an ox goat or Samson, of course. And right now, you don't have anybody like that. You have a bunch of former bricklayers who've just been going through the wilderness in the desert eating manna. They were vulnerable but they had the power of God. And that staff up on the hill is what made all the difference. Really the God that gave Moses that staff. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4. You might think, I wish that was true of me too. Well, it is, Christian. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4. Though we walk in the flesh, yeah, you live in a world where you do need to swing the sword to drive away the enemy sometimes. But we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. What do you think the military would pay for divine power to destroy strongholds? That's what you have living in you, my friend. We live in the flesh. Joshua still had to go fight the Amalekites. There are going to be other times where the Lord says, don't even worry about that. Red Sea, you don't have to worry about fighting them. Most of the time, though, you've got to get up and you've got to do what's got to be done. But your power is in the spirit, which is where our attention and our energy need to go as believers. We need to be strong in the spirit, not just strong in the flesh. And it's very easy to justify and give all kinds of spiritual justification for being strong in the flesh. But you can never be that to the exclusion of being strong in the spirit. Because on that final day, it's not going to make a difference. So we see Moses here raising the staff, raising his hands. This is a sign of a number of things, of prayer, of worship, of surrender to the Lord, of desperation. And all that together, I mean, you can sum it up in, in the act of prayer, which is the most spiritual thing that we do as Christians. Because there's no value in the flesh to prayer, is there? None. You pray, you don't get anything out of it except for checking off your list that I prayed today. There's all kinds of psychological benefits. Well, you can get that from doing any number of things, taking a few deep breaths. But prayer is spiritual. 
And in fact, in Ephesians 6, 18, which comes after that verse that says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, all that builds up to, you know, put on the armor of God, stand in the evil day. And how do we take action? He says, praying always in the spirit. How do we fight against the enemy? We pray. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12 said, the Lord sent angels to answer Daniel's prayer the minute he started to pray. It took them three weeks to come because they had been fighting against the, the prince of Persia, the demonic ruler of the air in that, that nation. Prayer and, and all of the things that are associated with prayer, fasting, right? reading the Bible, being around other believers, worship, all of that, moral surrender to the Lord. It's all bound up in that same idea of prayer and submission to Jesus. That's how we fight as Christians. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples were trying to cast a demon out of this boy, and they couldn't do it. And it was becoming a point of embarrassment and shame. And the scribes and the Pharisees said, we've got him. We've got him now. This is our chance to tear them apart because they can't cast out this demon. Well, Jesus shows up, and the, the demon convulses the boy, and he starts to foam at the mouth and contort and, and all, all the horrific things that you can imagine. And Jesus cast that demon out with a word. It's a wonderful story. That's where we get that line, I believe, but help my unbelief. But it says in Mark 9, 28, that when they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and some manuscripts add and fasting. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. That's a loaded sentence, isn't it? This kind? You mean there are, there are kinds of demons? Well, there are kinds of angels, right? The seraphim and the cherubim and the wheels within the wheels. And, you know, there's the afflicting spirit that was sent to Saul. And the book, book of Revelation has angels that are, have rainbows in their hair. And one foot is in the sea and one foot is in the land. And some of them have four heads and six wings. And some of them look like men and some of them look like beasts. And there's demons that look like frogs. And there's demons that look like locusts with women's hair. And it is, it's pretty wild. So Jesus says, this kind, I've not had much experience with the different kinds of demons. Although I did hear a pretty radical story at the, at the pastor summit this year that really built my faith in a lot of ways that, you know, he said, I was thrown into this counseling situation and that guy was possessed. <laughs> and I said, what'd you know? We cast out the demon. Like that's right. That's it. Right? We have power in the spirit, but I'm, I'm getting carried away. This, this kind cannot be driven out. Cannot. I mean, just that first half of the sentence is really scary, isn't it? This kind cannot be driven out. Even the imagery of driving something out. You ever had to drive a, a dog out of your house or something? Or like there's, you know, some critter trying to get in your door. Like, I, 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 you know, get out of here. Or maybe there's somebody you had to drive out of your house. I don't know. This kind cannot be driven out by anything. You can stand there and say, depart in the name of Jesus all you want, and it's not going anywhere. But prayer and fasting. He said, you got to be prayed up if you want to beat this one. And you, should, you probably should fast too. You've got to be strong in the spirit. That's what fasting does. It makes you strong in the spirit. Because you're teaching your body, I don't listen to you. I listen to the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within me. Jesus recognized that the battles he had to face were spiritual battles. They heard that he had cast a demon out of that one, that one guy on the first day, and they brought everybody that they knew that was afflicted with any kind of sickness or any kind of possession. Jesus had to be ready for that. 
So he made spirituality a priority. Luke 5.16 says he would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would go back to the wilderness and pray. Why? Because he knew he might get some kid with an epileptic demon brought to him that, that this kind can't go out except by prayer and fasting. Now you're not going to be able to stop in that moment and do 30 seconds of quick prayer and fasting. You have to have been prayed up. You've got to have been fasting. And Jesus always was. So Christian, by the Holy Spirit, you are powerful. You, you have power beyond what you could ask or think, the word tells us, by the Spirit of God. However, if you quench the Spirit, that's when the Bible compares the Holy Spirit to a fire that you can pour water on and quench through faithlessness, just by a lack of belief. I don't know if I believe all that. I'm guilty of this even as a pastor. Ah, okay, well, yeah, you hear a testimony. You ever hear a testimony of an amazing healing or something that God's done? And you go, well, okay. Now, did you confirm this? Do we have documentation? You know, is, are there x-rays that we can look at? And why do we doubt testimonies from godly people? I don't know why we do that, especially if it lines up with exactly what the Bible says. Faithlessness or sin. Sin will quench the spirit. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. You break his heart. And there can some that can beat that into you, and, and there's grace for all of that. If you've got sin in your life, I'm not saying it's easy, but it doesn't take long to get it right. If you're born again, you come back to the Lord and you let him wash your feet, Jesus said. He who has been cleansed has no need except to wash his feet. But sin will quench the Holy Spirit. Or laziness. Laziness will quench the Spirit. If you haven't read your Bible in six months, you haven't prayed in six years, you haven't really worshipped for a very long time. You kind of wait for it to be over, and then we can, then we can get to the good stuff. And, and imagine somebody brings you their, their kid that they think might be demon-possessed, to use that example. Or you're, you're now presented with a wide-open opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody that doesn't know Jesus, can you imagine the demonic attack that you are facing in that moment? You're about to drag one soul out of hell and into heaven. You don't think that the enemy is is on you at that point and is going to bring up every fear and every, kind of, and every kind of doubt in your mind. If you're lazy and you've not thought it through and you've not prayed it through, or if you've let other things steal your love, Jesus told the church in Revelation, he said, you've got all this great stuff going on and I commend you for it, but you've left your first love. So all that good stuff you're doing, doing doesn't mean anything. I'm going to take your lampstand from its place if you don't repent. The Lord loves the good things we do, but if your heart is not right, he said that your church is, is doomed. Your spiritual life is doomed. It's going to shrivel up. You won't be ready for the battle if you do those things. So if you're facing spiritual battle, you've got to employ spiritual strategies, which means we're not just going to get in and make it happen. Sometimes you can't. There's nothing you can do except get on your knees and pray. But Christian, that's where you're mighty. That's where you're unstoppable. That, that's, that's calling in an airstrike, man. Like, oh yeah, we can fight, but you know, we can call in the big guns when we pray. Why wouldn't you? Well, I'll do it when the moment comes. Well, it might be too late. Because Satan is always after you and never takes a day off. You have an enemy and you've got to be ready to face him. Verses 12 through 13. But Moses' hands grew weary. Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. 
Battle rages. We do not know for how long the battle was, but Moses became too tired to lift his hands. And this is a big deal because lifting your hands is what's giving you victory in this moment. I always think of this, and it's the only time I'm, I'm going to mention it because I think of this every time I read this story. Survivor Africa is one of the few times I watched this show back in the day. They had a challenge where they, they tied people's hands to a water bucket and they had to see how long they could hold their arms up in the air and whoever kept their arm up the longest would be the one who got to be immune from elimination that week. It's a dumb little you know, reality show. But I think of that and you'd be amazed how fast some of these people went out. 15 minutes, most of them. 15, 20, 30 minutes. The two at the end went for six hours. Six hours, and they, could, they couldn't hardly move their arm after it was over and it was out in the hot sun. So I don't know how long Moses was out there, but I mean, you go home and try it. <laughs> you go home and hold up your, your staff and see how long it can last. But I mean, the stakes are so much higher in this story, aren't they? People are dying. Your friends, your loved ones, brothers in, in, in the nation of Israel are dying. You've got to keep your hands up, Moses. I wonder what it was. I, I can't. I can't keep it up anymore. I can't hold this. I'm going I'm, to, and it keeps dropping up. I'm just going to rest for a minute. And then they see more young men being cut down. Maybe they knew their names even. Not only that, but God's reputation is at stake. But he just can't. He's weary. Let me tell you, walking in the spirit does not mean you won't get tired. Doesn't mean you won't face struggles. In fact, that's one of Satan's prime strategies. If you're strong in the spirit, He's going to go after your flesh. He's going to make you tired. He's going to make you hungry. He's going to make you thirsty. He's going to make you sad. He's going to make you angry. To weaken the flesh in order to control the spirit. You know how we know this to be true? Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil waited until Jesus was weak. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. He knows he's going to be tempted. He's about to begin his ministry. I wonder if all the petty demons around Satan were saying things like, well, Get in there. Come on. Tempt him. Tempt him. He goes, Just wait. Ten days go by. Jesus is waiting for the temptation. It hasn't come. Twenty days. You don't think boredom was a factor here? He's waiting. Thirty days. It's been a month. He's been out in the wilderness. No temptation. Thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine. Forty days with no food. And then the whisper comes. If you are really the Son of God, command those stones to become bread. You might think, well, you're going to tempt him with bread. What a foolish temptation. Oh, people will do horrible things when they're hungry, won't they? And he had the power to turn those stones into bread. Satan waited until he was weak, until he was hungry. But what does Jesus teach us there? He says, you can't let your flesh rule over your spirit. Certainly not over the Holy Spirit. This is why we discipline ourselves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I beat my body into submission and make it my slave. I don't work for you, stomach. <laughs> I don't work for you. I do what the Lord says, even if that means pain, suffering, and death. But Moses had Aaron, and he had her, and they supported his arms. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of holding up his arms so that he can continue. 
We all need people like this in our lives. And you also need to be people like this for each other. Even Jesus needed this. Mark 14, 33 through 34. And I'll read verse 38 also. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross. And Jesus knows, I've got to pray. He goes to the garden to pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And verse 38, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says, I'm ready to go to the cross, but I'm scared to death. I don't want nails driven into my hands. I don't want a crown of thorns. I don't want to be flogged. I don't want to be held up to suffocate for all the world to see. I don't want to. But I need to. So let's pray together. He sought his disciples to be with him and pray with him so that he would obey the Spirit even when he was weak in his flesh. And of course, we know the story. They all fell asleep. He didn't even have that last little bit of comfort in his final moments. He had to drink the cup down to the dregs, didn't he? But let's ask this question. Do you have people around you who are able to provide spiritual strength for you in your dark moments? Too many of our interactions, and and it's easy to, the things I'm going to talk about, so easy to get legalistic, but let's just hear the truth here. Too many of our interactions as people center around sports or movies or gossip or politics, for crying out loud, When you're weary on the mountain and you need someone to hold up your arms, that cannot be your first spiritual conversation with somebody. You have no history. It'll be weird. It'll be awkward. When When you're desperate in the spirit and things are falling apart, but you've never spoken about spiritual things to anybody, now all of a sudden you need to confess something to a brother? You might not be able to. They might not be ready for it. You might not be ready for it. You don't have that kind of relationship. You look around and you say, who can I tell this to? I don't have anybody. I got people I go to church with, but all we ever talk about is the game. You've got to be the one. Don't then start you know, complaining. Yeah, nobody's spiritual with me. Nobody's holding my arms up. Nobody takes you. Yeah, I'm, me and Jesus, or we're just like this because nobody was there for him. Nobody's there for me either. Well, poor you. You be the one. You be the one to raise the spiritual temperature of your conversations. Well, it'll be awkward. Yeah, it will. But it needs to be. Now, lots of things are awkward at first. Your first few days on the job are awkward. Your first few dates with your wife or your husband are awkward. Your, your first interactions with anybody are awkward. And when you start to make things more serious, it'll feel awkward. But at the very least, you'll learn that this person refuses to have that kind of spiritual conversation and relationship, then, all right, I know I can't depend on this person, so I'm not going to get burned later. Is that cynical? No, that's just real. But I think, especially in the church, most people are okay with that. We're here because we have Jesus in common. If you all came to the home fellowship to talk about Jesus, we'll talk about Jesus. I'm not saying, like, it's got to all be verses and, and how artest thou, brother, and, you know. But every now and then... Cycle the conversation back to talking about the Lord. And then it's okay to talk about other things, but then every so often, cycle it back. And when, y'all, when you feel like you've kind of crossed the line, and you know what, we really shouldn't be talking like this, then pull it back. Don't, don't be a jerk about it and beat everybody down. You're doing it too. But it's, hey, let's, you know what, we probably shouldn't be talking like this, huh? Yeah, well, that'd be uncomfortable. Yeah, well, you need to be uncomfortable. You did something that was wrong. <laughs> you be the one. 
We're mighty in the spirit, but we are stronger when we're together. That's how God made us. Threefold cord is not quickly broken. And you've also got to remember too, because this is going to be encouraging to somebody. When you're weary, you're not broken. When you feel like you're weary and you're just, I'm tired of walking through this. That's not the same thing as failure. Jesus was weary. Moses was weary. I'm tired of trying to obey the Lord's commandments. We all get tired. I'm tired of walking through this and having to shoulder this burden. Well, you can't quit. Well, I'm so tired, but you haven't failed. When you exercise, you get tired. When you go to the job, you get tired, but you still show up every day. Get some of that, that blue-collar mentality with your faith. It's not always going to be standing on the Mount of Transfiguration. Some days it's going to be going around and handing out bread to all the people on the lake. Some days it's going to be, no, Jesus is, is getting in the boat. That We're all done for the day. Please come back tomorrow. This doesn't feel very spiritual, but it is. It's all spiritual. Don't go, well, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of obeying. I'm so tired of humbling myself. I'm so tired of controlling myself. I must be a failure. No, you haven't failed. You're just weak in the flesh. But who cares about your flesh? Is your spirit strong? Go and strengthen your spirit. And the Lord is so gracious, he'll strengthen your flesh too. You might need a little help, but you've got to be able to have that endurance to keep walking. And in the end, Joshua succeeded. That word there for overwhelmed, you could also translate it disabled or prostrated. Like he knocked them straight down to the ground. He didn't destroy them. The nation wasn't done. Remember, this probably wasn't their full army. It was probably a raiding party or something to that effect. But this was Joshua's first victory, the first of many. In verses 14 through 16 now, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Small note, but a significant one. In verse 14, this is the first time the Lord told Moses to write something down. There was all kinds of liberal attacks on the Bible forever. Writing hadn't even been invented yet. Turns out it had for like 2,000 years, so it wasn't that crazy. But God tells Moses to write it down. He's going to tell him an awful lot. Write it down. And at this point, oral tradition was the primary way of communicating truth. But God was able to see to 2021. He says they're going to need it written down so they can continue to read it and remember like we're doing now. This is the first reference to what you might call the plan of the Bible. The plan to have a canon of scripture. And he tells him to write a memorial, so that, write down what happened in the battle so that the people will remember. Especially, he says, Joshua. Now, why Joshua? Because what is Joshua going to be called to do? He's going to lead the conquest in the promised land. He's going to lead them to all kinds of miraculous spiritual victories. The strategy God's going to give him at Jericho. March around the city for seven days and don't attack anybody. And then when the walls collapse on their own, that's when you can attack. Joshua might have gone, are you crazy? That, no, I'm not doing that. But he would have remembered when Moses held up that staff. And when the staff was down, they lost. When the staff was up, they, they succeeded. He'd have the battle at Ai where they say, you know, we'll just send a few guys. We can take them. And then they get beat because somebody had taken plunder from Jericho. There was sin in the camp. And until they eliminated it, they couldn't win. He's going to have the, day, the battle at Gibeon where he says, Lord, let the sun stand still. And the sun goes, Arr! until they finished 
wiping all the people out. He needed to remember this because God is going to have a lot of these for him later. And he builds an altar, which is called Yahweh Nisi or Jehovah Nisi. You may have heard that. And it means the Lord is my banner. Now, there's some interesting translation things here. The word for, for you can see in Nisi, the root form is the word Nes, N-E-S. And at this stage of the Hebrew language, it would have meant pole or staff or rallying point. So there's probably some sort of play on the idea of the staff that Moses held up here. Later on in Hebrew, it'll very specifically refer to a banner, like, you know, the king's banner, and, and you'll know where it is, you'll know where to rally and where to gather, and maybe seen it in old movies, they'll wave those big flags so that they know where to go or they know which regiment is where. And uh, it also can be used to describe the sails on a ship. But at this point, it's probably referring to uh, more like a commemorative pole or something like that. And probably uh, some, kind of, some kind of reference to the, the staff of the Lord here. But the, the idea is, is the same either way, that the Lord is where we rally, right? The Lord is the one who's going to fight for us. Banner works just fine. It, it you know, feels much better than staff or pole, I think. But Now, verse 16 is a little confusing, <laughs> There's actually a lot of different translation ideas on what we say here. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. And we go, what? (laughs) A A hand on the throne of the Lord. Where was there a hand on the throne of the Lord? Now, this could be okay when Moses was holding up that, that, that staff. It's almost as if he was touching the very throne of God because the Lord was there and was ruling and reigning. Uh, this is a great time to talk about something called emendation. I'm usually not a big fan of this, but let me explain what I mean here. So the word for throne, a hand upon the throne of the Lord is the word kes, and it means throne. All right? If you were to change the word the letter K to the letter N, you'd get ness, which is the word that we just read called banner. And if this were to read, a hand upon the banner of the Lord, that would flow really nicely. But we say, wait a minute, it doesn't say ness, it says kes, right? Well, the letter K in Hebrew is, is like a, a, a square with the, the left side removed. The letter N is like a square with the left side removed, but the top and bottom lines are shorter. And it's very, very easy to confuse them. I took a Hebrew class, I can tell you for sure. And every now and then, a Hebrew scholar will look at this and say, you know, it could be that when this was transcribed at some point from the original autograph, that the, the letter was, was misread, and that's why we get this rather confusing sentence. Most of the time, what I'll say is, if it's confusing, we just need to think a little bit harder. But this is an important place to talk about it. The, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, uh, says, <laughs> a hidden hand. The Lord has a hidden hand. I have no idea where they got that from. But it's actually interesting to think about because the Septuagint, the Greek, is older than the Hebrew text that we use. So it's, it's, this is the kind of thing that we think about. But the basic idea is clear no matter what, right? That the Lord was there, the Lord was their victory, and the Lord will continue to be their victory. The point is that God was, is, and always will be the victory for his people. And he promises to utterly blot out the Amalekites. There's actually a play on words here. He says, you write down in the book what I did, and I'll blot them out from my book. The Amalekites, for they were their treachery and their cowardice in attacking the weak people of Israel. And Israel did indeed have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Amalekites were kind of like the, the thorn in the flesh 
of the people of Israel. So uh, real quickly here, I want to give you a survey of where we see these people. The Lord is going to tell them to drive them out and completely destroy them. In Numbers 14, 15, when the children of Israel try to go into the land when they're not supposed to, then it's the Amalekites among other nations that will drive them back out. In Judges, twice, in chapter 3 and chapter 6 and 7, Ehud, who fought against the, the fat king Eglon, if you read that story. His coalition involved the Midianites and the Amalekites. One of the nations that Gideon would fight was the Amalekites. Later on in the, in the time of the kings, Saul was ordered by God. This is the day where we're going to utterly destroy the Amalekites. But Saul didn't. He spared their king named Agag, and he spared the best of the stuff. And you get the idea that Saul won the battle but did not destroy the people. And this is where Samuel came up and told him, you're going to lose the kingdom now. God has torn this away from you. And this is where he says to obey is better than sacrifice. And Samuel the prophet, it says, go look it up. It says he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. Took the king of Amalek. They brought him out of, out of his, his jail cell, so to speak. And the prophet chopped him up because the Lord was trying to execute judgment on this nation and his representative, the king, had not done that. Eventually, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 1, Saul attempts to commit suicide during a battle with the Philistines and fails to do so. And while he's there lying in pain, one of the young armor bearers runs by and he says, who are you? He says, I'm, I'm one of your guys. He says, well, would you please kill me so that the Philistines don't, don't ravage me and torture me before I die? And the young man that killed him was an Amalekite. And you can see how his failure led to his death there. David and Hezekiah, 1 Chronicles talks about both of them fighting the Amalekites and finally making an end of them as a nation. You're not going to read about the Amalekites people anymore, except for one more time. You meet a guy named Haman in the book of Esther who tries to have all the Jews killed. What's this guy's deal with the Jews? Why does he hate him so much? Because Haman was an Agagite. He was a descendant of that king that Samuel hacked into pieces before the Lord. So that trouble that almost cost the end of the Jews happened at the hands of an Amalekite. But you don't hear about them much today, do you? You needed me to remind you because the Lord has utterly blotted out the memory of the Amalekites on the earth. So you have a memorial here of a past victory, a promise of future victory, and there's also embedded in this a guarantee of future conflict. You're going you're gonna to fight these people over and over and over and over again, but eventually you will win. Jesus told us something similar in John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. That's your daily bread promise for the day. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. Sin the world, the devil, these are going to be thorns in our flesh until Jesus comes back. But the thing is, they're no match for us. And they march from defeat to defeat, whereas you as a child of God, you go from glory to glory. And that's, quite honestly, it's probably not so much the glory of God to the glory of God, as much as a glorious victory to another glorious victory. From one, one point of praise the Lord to another point of praise the Lord. And we've got our memorials too. Our memorial of our past victory is when we come to the table of the Lord. We remember the cross. 
Remember the day that Jesus broke the back of sin and of Satan and of death. And all we're waiting for now is for the Lord to blow the whistle and say, game over. That's it. Time's up. But it also, as Paul said, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our ultimate victory is going to come when Jesus returns to defeat every foe. When he comes riding at a sharp sword out of his mouth with which he will strike down the nations and he will tread the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. And 1 Corinthians 15 says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what we're looking forward to. So if we know that, that Jesus won the first battle, he's going to win the last battle, and we know we're going to have a bunch of little battles in between, why do we think we'll have anything other than victory if we walk in that same power? You need to have the confidence to step out in faith and win your battles. Even if you fall, even if you get killed, you, you seal your salvation with your last breath and you wake up to the smiling face of Jesus saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Your problems are not all material and carnal and, and physical. They're spiritual, but that shouldn't freak you out. Because in the spiritual, when the devil starts attacking you in the spirit, that's where he's made his gravest mistake because that's where you're strong. In your weakness, the strength of God is made complete. And in case you've doubted this, let me read one more last passage to remind you of this. In Psalm 91, verses 9 through 13, it says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. That's what it means to walk with Jesus. That there's victory coming. Yeah, you're going to be attacked. You're going to be attacked by lions and serpents and thrown from high places. But the Lord's like, I've got you. You're on my team and I don't lose. You are in a war, make no mistake, but you're mighty in the spirit by the blood of Jesus Christ. So fight in such a way that you can win. Don't make it all about, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm struggling with sin. I better reorganize my life. Hey, do that. But get on your knees and get some spiritual power. Maybe you're thirsty. Maybe you're dry. Man, I can live off a good prayer time for like six weeks, but I shouldn't. Do that every day. Seek the Lord every single day. And what's going to happen is you get distressed and you get attacked and you panic, so you start to pray. So what does Satan do? He backs off. And you go, you know what? I feel much better. I don't think I need to pray every day. And then he comes back slowly, slowly, insidiously, deceptively coming to tear you down again. Don't do it. Surround yourself with brothers and sisters who can strengthen you and hold your arms up when you're weak. And then when they're weak, you're there. Don't worry about it, brother. I'm strong. I'll hold up your arm. You lean on me. You as a husband and wife, do that for each other. As brothers and sisters in the church, do this for one another. For those around you that are not strong in the spirit and you know that they need to grow because they're vulnerable. When they fall, you be like, no, no, don't worry about it. I'm right here with you. That's what we must be for one another. And keep your eyes on the memorial that the Lord has written for us in the blood and the body of his own son, Jesus. And look forward to the promise of the victory that's going to bring it all to a grand smashing conclusion.